creative company is so delicious, and the creative process is one of my favorite subjects. How humans can create something out of nothing is wildly exciting to me. And one of the best ways I love to spend my time is writing and recording my songs. Angie Swan is a professional multi-instrumentalist touring with all kinds of cool bands all over the world. She's been nominated for Grammys because of her work with Cirque du Soleil and David Byrne. We talked today about cool instruments, touring, the writer's strike, what's going on in the world today, technology. She's even a Berkeley alumni. Hello. Hello, hello. Wow, good to see you. It's really good to see you. Thanks so much for hopping on. Oh, of course, of course. It's been a long time. I know. You're, <laughs> you're in California. What's, what, what area are you in? Uh, I'm in Los Angeles and actually downtown, which is kind of crazy. I, I just moved back here like six months ago from New York. Oh, wow. Mm -hmm. That's a long way to go. <laughs> I know. And I'm like, and now with the, with the writer's strike and all the strikes, like a lot of work even got shut down for musicians because we do a lot of TV and film stuff, like, you know, being in the background of, of shots. And um, it's like my whole summer just whew, got wiped out. Oh, no. You had a whole bunch of things planned and then. Yeah. Yeah. I had a lot of filmings planned. So like the whole thing just got like, like around March, April, like things just started kind of shutting down. And now I'm just like, Oh, was this the right decision to come back here? So um, <laughs> I'm figuring that out right now, but um, wow. you know, it's still, it's pretty crazy. I mean, it's just, I mean, even in you know other cities are affected by it too. So it's just kind of, we're all just kind of hanging up by a thread, like, all right, what happens next? Like holding our breath. So. Yeah. Like any strike, it's very, uh, unnerving yeah yeah it's it's interesting too because you know we just i think in new york the the um the crew members the is iast whatever the the, the stagehands were going to strike which would have shut down broadway but i think the musicians union is the only union that can contractually not strike really yeah, and I found that out recently. They can't walk out. Um, other unions, I think they're able to. I don't know. It's a whole thing. But uh, I just yeah. feel like overall across the board, I think creatives are just, this is a huge pivotal time for everyone. So, I mean, yeah. we're, we're all kind of standing up together for, you know, fighting against conglomerates and you know, AI and, you know, all of our careers are at risk. Oh, my goodness. Kind of crazy. Very crazy. Yeah. <laughs> I know. <laughs> so, I was going back a little ways, looking through some information, and you graduated from Berkeley in two thousand and five. I finished. I ran out of money. I, I I walked. I walked. I'm a few credits short, so it's kind of crazy. You know, I, I'm. Very but it was back in two thousand five. I thought it was even more recent than that. It doesn't feel that long ago. I don't know where the time went. It's so crazy. Just a day. It's 2023. So no, it was a long time ago. But yeah. now I try to keep ties with Boston and, you know, with the school. So that, that's probably why it feels more recent. Right, and, right. Yeah, that's what I'm thinking. I got to show you something as a cool. guitar player. Have you seen this yet? No. What you got? So this, is a, this is called a Ciari. So I, you know, I, I don't, I'm not, I work with different companies and, you know, there's so many great guitars in the world, but then this one's different. How so? What's going on back there? Oh my goodness. <laughs> it fits under the seat in front of you on airplanes. Okay. It's a foldable guitar, but it's also, um, 
it's it it's not like your regular travel guitar. You can actually play it on a stage. It's got Seymour Duncan 59s. I just got it. That's why I, I was like, I can't wait to show Lauren. That's just, <laughs> it fits in a backpack. Yeah. And there's a mechanism here that releases the tension. Yeah. So you, so you can fold it in three parts. Oh my God. It's, so for those who can't completely see, in tune. you have to go watch this video. <laughs> Maybe we'll put this as the short clip too, because oh, yeah. <laughs> really no, cool. it's, and she let, just let, folded the neck back on her guitar. It was like her guitar was a yogi master and it just completely <laughs> folded in three places. It's, it's, the, it's the contortionist of guitars, but I, I just flew back to LA from Detroit yesterday. I had my regular, you know, my, my mono pace, my regular guitar. Yeah. And foldable. First time I've ever brought two guitars on a plane as a carry-on. And when it went through TSA, the guy was like, is that a foldable guitar? I'm like, it is. <laughs> That's amazing. It, and it fits in a backpack. So I'm like, I, it, it's just, you know, it's the most innovative thing I've seen recently. Yeah. So it's like one of those cool things you'd see at a NAMM show and go, whoa. <laughs> well, that's the thing. I was skeptical about it until a buddy of mine got one. And I was like, I have to try it. Cause I'm like one that folds in half, there's gotta be intonation issues. And it, how does it feel at the point where it bends? So he let me try his. And I recently sold a couple of guitars and I was just like, this would save me a lot of money and stress because my buddy's old Gibson got crushed. It got gate checked and the handler, oh like the case broke open. He was looking outside the window in the airplane. So this is just, this, this will save me a lot of stress and time when traveling. Yeah. Yeah. So those places where it bends, it's just smooth and, and you never, well, you don't even you can realize kind of see, Like you can't really feel it. It's very, yeah. Like, you yeah. know, you're playing. Yeah. You, it's really still very playable. And then here where it bends, that's where it bends at the 12th and the 14th. Oh, wow. And you don't feel that as a different nope. in, in any way. That's nope. fantastic. <laughs> yeah. And Seymour Duncan. Wow. Some of my yeah, favorite. Yeah. Well, I think most of them come with uh, P90s, but I wanted something Seymour Duncan. And it's got a, um, it's got a switching system too, so it can split the coils. So this is a pretty versatile thing. And next time I see you in person, I'm bringing it so you can try it. Okay. Okay, enough of that commercial. <laughs> I think uh, the the first time I realized that Seymour Duncan was an actual person <laughs> was yep. at my first Nam show. I was like, "You're a person? I thought you were a pickup." <laughs> I know. I know. Right? He's like, "Is that a pickup line?" But uh, yeah, right. All those guys they they use their names, and it's, it's yeah, yeah. That's so great. Well, that looks really that's, cool. That's how I felt about Les Paul. Excuse yes, me. I, chewed, I chewed some ice because I knew I was talking to you. I went to like one of the few Dunkin Donuts in Los Angeles today. Because I'm like the Boston connection. All right. All right. <laughs> yeah, But no, Les Paul, like growing up, I, I never thought, you know, as a kid, I heard Les Paul, Les Paul. I thought about the guitar. Then to find out he's from my home state of Wisconsin. He's from Waukesha. I'm from Milwaukee. So. Wow. Pretty cool. Yeah. That is super cool. Mm -hmm. You know, I bet a lot of students would be interested in. How do you go from leaving Berkeley to doing all the cool things that you've done? You know, like what was what were some some of the first steps, or how did you get involved with various things? Uh, biggest thing was going to jam, jam sessions. Like you know, wherever. Like I moved from Boston to Los Angeles in two thousand five, and you know, at the time, social media wasn't what it what it is now. Like when I left Boston, oh. I, was, I was living with three guys from Harvard who were telling me about this thing called Facebook that I should <laughs> join. 
yeah, I'm dating myself. But they're like, yeah, this Facebook thing is going to blow up. And I'm like, no, no, I'm good with MySpace. What's the difference? And um, so like, yeah, like social media wasn't how many different places do we have to put all this information on? You know? Yeah, yeah, exactly. It's just too much. I was just oversaturated, I thought. And so I was like, no, I'm not interested in it. And so social media wasn't huge yet. You weren't seeing like a lot of players and musicians online. Uh, so what I would do is like go out, you know, and I, you know, even though you have platforms online now, still it's too many, there are too many people doing it. So I said, face to face time, go to jam sessions, go play with people who are better than you. Just mm. get out there, get on stage. And, you know, cause it's out of sight, out of mind. So you have to, you know, you have to be very present and meet as many people as you can connect with them. Uh, I still carry business cards to this day, like tangible ones. Cause we meet so many people. We yeah. put the information in our phone and then it's just gone in an abyss. Uh, so I'm like, I like to have a card. People wake up next morning, dig in their pocket. Oh, this person. And it's kind of like a reminder. So oh, you know, great. networking in general is the, what, what, what's helped me get my name out there. And then, you know, people would remember you. Oh, this person might be good for this project. But, um, you know, there's an audition process as well. But just, you know, being very present and visible is is important. Yeah, because it's very rare that you just get an email out of the blue. But I mean, that's like what happened with me. Every once in a while, a management company or a touring company will email me and say, we're looking for someone to fit this particular situation or play in this gig. Or uh, do you know any women guitarists? Because David Burns looking for a guitarist. And well, I no, thought, that's, I, I remember, this is yeah, your I, fault. The whole David Byrne thing was your fault. I mean, I thank, thank you again for that. Cause that was a message in email. No, on Facebook, but back to the Facebook thing, staying connected on that. I didn't know how to reach you. I, I just thought of you because, um, you know, I thought, do I want to do this myself? No, I don't want to do this one. So who do I know that can play really good guitar? He's looking for a woman. And I, there were two people and, uh, I don't know if you both auditioned or only you auditioned, but I was so glad that you got it because. Oh yeah. No, it was, it was Super crazy cool. how it happened. Cause I remember, I think the email you wrote me, you said some artist, and I didn't, you know, it was kind of discreet at, at first. Oh. I, like, oh, I don't live in New York. And, um, they, I think you told me who it was. I'm like, Oh yeah. And, and I did <laughs> from through, I was living in Wisconsin at the time. I had gone back home for a couple of years. So oh, I had a, a sick grandparent between two, 2015 and 17. I lived back in Milwaukee where I was from. And uh, so I, I remember I got the email and I, so I auditioned via like just online, just sent a couple videos in and some referral letters and he wrote me back, but his response, like his offer came to my junk mailbox. Oh. And I, just, I missed it for 48 hours. I didn't check. I never checked that. And I was just bored one day. I'm like, well, I haven't heard back from them. I guess that's, that's that. And I checked my junk mailbox and it says from David Byrne, my tour and you. Oh, <laughs> so if, if I would have he, like he could have like gone to the next person if I didn't see that email. Wow. Oh, that's so good. You checked. So do you check from now on? <laughs> oh, oh so, several times a day. <laughs> <laughs> Anybody looking for me? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. No, it's crazy. That's really cool. But you know, what really uh, surprised me was that when I came to see the show in Boston, you guys were all barefoot. I thought there was no way I could have done that show barefoot. Oh, yeah, that well, that was the thing, too. It was a lot on the body because I remember he said there's going to be some choreography. I was thinking two steps, but Massive. then when we started the, the choreographer. She's not a musician. So like she would be oh. like, everybody, I want you to throw your hands up on the downbeat. And we're like, there's not going to be a downbeat. 
if our, <laughs> hands are, if our hands are in the air. And she's like, why is that? And you have to explain that to her. So that was kind of funny. But That's um, hilarious. Yeah, no, it was a, a lot of dancing. And the barefoot thing, I think, was to be a contrast from the three-piece suits we were wearing. Right. But a lot having a heavy instruments. And, you know, I've got flat feet. So for a while, I wore, like, ballet shoes and, like, arch support. Because, oh, you know, we're, we're doing, like, over a hundred. We did over a hundred shows a year. Probably about 500 total with the tour in Broadway. Oh, my God. Yeah. That's a lot on your feet. <laughs> oh, yeah. Feet, back, shoulders. Because, you know, we're doing those lunges and running yeah. around. And I think, oh, yeah. And, and one, when we were touring in Brazil, we would bring things that each country liked. And in Brazil, I did a guitar solo while juggling with a um, soccer ball on my foot. I got to find that video somewhere. Oh, my God. Because half the band was Brazilian. So. <laughs> Wow. <laughs> it was crazy. I connect with them. Yeah, yeah. One of the videos I saw then eventually everybody was wearing shoes. So then that switched? Uh no, we, we mostly stayed barefoot. If we if we were ever wearing shoes, it was usually at a concert where the stage was hot. Like we, we played Austin City Limits and oh. the, the sun was on the stage. And also, you know, when you're playing uh, music festivals, different bands come up and these stages, some had nails sticking out of them. Yeah. You know, these we have wooden stages, but the hardest like stage for me to play was um Red Rocks because the stage was pure cement. So there was no there was no give. We're jumping up and down, no nothing to absorb the shock. Wow. So like we're having to ice our shins down and then you're you're a mile high, so the air is thin. So we had like oxygen tanks on the side of the stage. Wow, that's a really physical gig. Jeez. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah. No, no. it was crazy. Were you guys touring with your own sound and lights or was it up to wherever you got to? Oh no, the tour was, yeah, we had a great crew. It was the same. The only thing that would change is every stage, the width of the stage. Some stages were 50 feet. Some might be 60 or hundred. Mm-hmm. So we gauge how large of steps we need to take to get from one position to the next. Yeah. Um, but you guys, uh, you, you guys were all using in-ears, right? Oh yeah. We had in-ears. We had wireless microphones wireless instruments but we also had this system called black tracks which were antennas on our shoulders which designated a, a spotlight for each of us so it was we're all we'll see we're all wired up even wow. before, even before coffee <laughs> <laughs> wow because but, you know out front it was so boomy and so bassy it was like they were trying to remove your vital organs with the oh, bass. oh wow wow okay wait where did you did you see it at the uh bank the bank of the pavilion or did yeah. you see the theater okay that was out yeah those outside areas are usually a little bit bigger boston pavilion yeah, yeah. then so, we played at the colonial theater we had like a, about a one month run at colonial oh cool uh, right before we went to broadway they did like a month in boston and then moved to broadway so you didn't have to worry about onstage volume because you were, you could just control your own in-ears. Yeah, we had in-ears. But, you know, the hardest thing, I think our front of house guy, he had a, quite the task because we're constantly moving around on stage. So the sound is changing. And so with our awesome. yeah, with our microphones on at any given moment, if there's a guy standing next to me playing the snare drum, yes. I have to be aware of that and move away from him or he had to watch out for me if I'm singing because it would pick up on the mic. Yes. Like, yeah, it, there's a lot of moving parts to that, but that yeah. was only five years of my 20 year career. Wow. Only five years. That's yeah, a long time. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. But, but, you know, in between that was 2020, everything was shut down. And, you know, I was in New York that whole time, which was uh, oh. interesting to say the least. I, I had moved to New York in 20, I, I moved there in 2019. So I only had like 
one year to really experience New York before, you know, the whole world changed. So. Oh, yeah, it was crazy. But, you know, it was a great experience. And, um, you know, everything I feel like all all the shows I'd done prior to that had helped really helped in leading up to that show with David. Like, you know, Cirque du Soleil really helped, you know, getting used to using wireless systems and moving around the stage and, um, you know, in-ears, which I've used with a lot of different artists, but, you know, yeah. at first it's a little disorienting because I always was used to using a front, you know, wedge, but mm. I do, I do prefer the in-ear mix because you get, you know, you can kind of get accustomed to what you want to hear and you have more mobility and more freedom. And, uh, but one thing yeah. you, to avoid being disoriented, I always liked a little, like a, a, a microphone in the audience. So you can kind of get a lot of the ambient sound still. Oh, good. So it felt like you were still there and the band was close enough because they're all dancing around you. Yes, yes, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. The other in-ear situations, you were standing in the same spot? Uh, yeah, usually, yeah. Because, like, if they don't want the wedges, uh, if they, you know, some artists don't like a loud stage volume, so they'd rather have everyone just in their in-ears. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and it's it's so weird. I just did a show two days ago in Detroit. It was called uh, Black Women Rock, and it had, like, uh, 10 vocalists, different artists from around the country. And, you know, I always get confused. We all had wedges. I'm like, sometimes the sound on the stage is just so all over the place. And I'm like, that's usually when the sound in the house is really nice. It seems, <laughs> it seems to work like that usually. Like when I'm like, I'm like playing, I'm like, is, is this what it sounds like out there? But the front of house person has a nice mix. <laughs> Yeah, or like, you know, I'll be, they'd say, oh yeah, come to the front of the stage when you take a solo. And I would be, you know, in front of my wedge. And then the second I leave, I can't hear myself. Oh no. So I'm just like, all right, just make sure you're playing the right thing. <laughs> I don't think people realize how much we all go through to play these giant stages or to go on these tours or how much work it actually is. They just think, oh, you're getting paid to play. But there's so much. Yeah, yeah. I mean, behind the scenes. Yeah, people and a lot of public and masses still think this, like they think music is a hobby. They don't (laughs) think of it this way. Medical school is what, five to 10 years? Hmm. We start playing our instruments at young age as as children. People studying to become doctors at 12 years old. (laughs) I know. I was talking to a friend recently, like we put in our 10,000 hours before we even got to college. Yeah, yeah. you know, so, yeah. But people still don't, at least in this country, people don't see it that way. And they don't seem to value art and artists, you know, like even people who are, you know, saying like these actors and actresses who are going on strike, they're like, oh, well, you guys make so much. And, oh, what are you complaining about? But that's that's only like a one percent of all the professional actors and actresses um, that aren't making a living. And, you know, it's so it. People don't value art, but I'm like, imagine a world without music. What did you, what would you have done during the pandemic without, if you didn't have a record to listen to or <laughs> to watch? So you, that is essential work. We are, we are essential workers. Oh yeah. It's, it's the uh, lifeblood of, of human kindness and, and inner life and mm-hmm. the, the creative life. I mean, that's the whole reason I wanted to, start having some of these chats with folks was to talk to other adults, you know, and have some company in this amazing creative life that we all play in, but live in, you know, I mean, we're, we're putting sound to 
feelings that we have that express things that people have no words for. Exactly. It's universal. Music and math, it's like the same rules and across the board. I remember when I first came to Berkeley, I was I was right from Wisconsin and just I was scared. I didn't know anybody. It was a new city and Boston compared to Milwaukee was so much bigger and these people from all over the world. And I remember sitting outside and I was hearing a lot of different foreign languages, which was really because it's a very international school. I remember this guy came up to me. I had a guitar and you know, he hardly spoke English. I can't even remember what language he was speaking, but he was just like, want to jam, want to jam, like want to play. And I'm like, okay, <laughs> we go get a, we get a room. And all of a sudden the communication was there. Yeah. We, I think we just play like a blues or something. So that's like, it's universal and it's very, it's a very special thing we have and we share with each other. That's so awesome. And then all those barriers come down, which is so great. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. When, when the music starts and people lock in and they really look at each other and they sort of see each other's hearts and you realize, ah, this is peaceful. This is wonderful. Yeah. Yeah. It's, 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 it's a connecting thing. And, you know, again, that's why I think it is very, it's very important to protect that and to, and to cherish that and to make sure and to keep passing that along to people and younger people and, you know, keep them out of their phones and like be more, you know, just be more connected with one another off screen as we talk here on Zoom. <laughs> <laughs> well, this is, you know, but we're, we're, we're 3000 miles apart. So we have a good we have a good excuse. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Mm-hmm. I know I, I, someone had asked, asked me if we could do this in person. I thought, well, that's a whole other setup. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> I, I need different cameras and yeah. Two people sitting next to each other, like the Dick Cavett show or something. Yes, yes. <laughs> right. Hey, well, eventually, I'm sure. Like when I'm out, if I'm out on the East Coast, I come up to Boston, I'll let you know. Okay. That would be cool. Yeah. Yeah. The, um, the, the thing that I find really interesting is when people want to start playing an instrument. Like how old were you when you first fell in love with guitar? Oh, wow. I was, um, uh, what well, my, my my dad's a guitar player. He 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 never played professionally, but he, he played guitar growing up and then switched over to bass. He had this old, oh, what did he have? He had like this old 70s Strat. I'd, I'd walk up to him and kind of try to strum it. And I think there's, yeah, I have a video of me at like three years old playing a ukulele. And I kind of already had the strumming pattern. I already had like the right hand technique. And I just watch him and his friends play all the time in our basement. Uh, my mother listened to all types of music. She turned me on to like Tracy Chapman, Robert Cray, uh, Dave Brubeck. And my dad got me into like Joe, Sat- Joe Satriani surfing with the alien. That album, like he played in the car in the summer, <laughs> driving down the road, listening to like Crushing Day or Always With You, Always With Me. Um, and also uh, Stevie Ray Vaughan. And you know his last concert was in Wisconsin. My, again, my home state, Alpine oh. Valley. Um, it was him, wow. Robert. Robert Cray, Eric Clapton, and Jimmy Vaughn. Um, and I remember when, you know, the helicopter crashed, I hearing about it and I was like, you know, too young to really know what was going on. But, you know, I, I remember how upset my father was about that. And um, mm. where he was playing Pride and Joy. And, uh, you know, then just so then that and, you know, Jan- Janet Jackson, Black Cat Tour, I saw, I think that was one of my first concerts. Oh, cool. uh, and, oh, what else? Oh, and the Jennifer Batten, of course, Dirty Diana video. Like I remember watching those and yeah, oh, wow. just, but I think I got my first guitar <laughs> when I was 11. It was like a harmony guitar from a JCPenney catalog. Mm-hmm. 
It was, it was, it was an electric. Yeah. And I'm, I'm trying to, I'm playing as like Christmas, it was a Christmas presents. And I started going to little guitar camps in Green Bay, Wisconsin, learned the pentatonic scale. And I thought I was the coolest person on earth. I was like <laughs> <laughs> playing the scale up and down really slowly, like quarter notes or half notes. Wow. And then, yeah. So I, I, you know, I, I, my mother took me to guitar lessons. I started with mostly blues and moved over to jazz in high school. And I was taking like summer programs at University of Wisconsin. They had like oh, wow. summer jazz programs. And I was really into jazz. And that's kind of what helped me get a partial scholarship to Berkeley. And, you know, I wasn't sure if I was going to go to Berkeley. I applied for uh, the new school, uh, University of Arts Roosevelt at Berkeley. And I want to say, it was a, I think I flipped a coin. I have a quarter from night from the year I was born. I decide between the new school in Berkeley, but New York felt so intimidating to me. It was such a big city. I couldn't navigate it. I was freaked out by the, the size of it. And Boston just felt like the better choice. And, you know, I had gone to like the Berkeley high school jazz competition with my high school. And oh, wow. so, yeah, so I had a lot of prep into making that decision. And also I liked the show Allie McBeal and Boston Public, which, which took place in Boston. So I just, I love the buildings there. It's just very- um, It is cool architecture. Yeah, it's a beautiful yeah. city. So I'm, yeah. I'm happy. I'm happy that that's the path that chose me or whatever. And what major were you working on? I did professional music because I just felt like it was a blend of different things I wanted to try out. Um, yeah. It was kind of like a choose, I thought of it as like a choose your own adventure. Because um, I was interested in a lot of different things, production, writing, definitely playing. Um, mm. uh, what was important to me is like, you know, reading was very important. But at the time, I wasn't such an ear player. So I started when I started going to jam sessions. And once I was old enough, I always wanted to go to Wally's. I remember at 20 years old, I walk up to the front door. And I was like, will they <laughs> let me in? Will they let me in? This big guy at the door. And, and I just <laughs> walked there. I was too scared to even try. So I didn't go to Wally's until like my 20, until I was 21 and just going in there. I used to be so nervous. I would leave in tears because I couldn't follow everyone. I've never even been there. What? It's in Boston, Columbus. I know. I know. I've passed by. Wally's? Okay. Yeah. 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 We're going to have to go there when I'm there, but uh, it's, uh, <laughs> no, it's, it's a staple. Like so many people have gone through there and it's just, oh, uh, yeah. just so And I used to live right down the street from Wally's. So I, usually go on the funk nights on Sundays and Tuesdays. Some of the people still play there too that I used to play with. Oh, sure. Yeah. So it's just, that place is just has a very special place in my heart. And um, <laughs> that's cool. Well, how would you say your playing changed from before you went to Berkeley to when you went back to California? Uh, well, it, it just changed a lot. I mean, before, I mean, so much like before I was just a young, you know, I was young and even in school throughout Berkeley, I was young. Like I really, I feel like I picked up a lot of fundamentals in, at Berkeley, like all the technical things. Mm -hmm. um, but then like getting out and playing after that and developing that's, but having those tools in my back pocket, I think really helped. Um, but then like experience wise, like I know so many amazing players, but then yeah. until you get out there and make yourself vulnerable and get on stage. You don't really know what it feels like. I've seen so many killing musicians on YouTube. You have like a hundred thousand followers. And then all of a sudden they're a musician, musical star. But <laughs> they don't know how to play in front of, or play with people. They can, they're killing, but then the ears aren't developed yet because you can play amazing things by yourself. But then when you get on stage with other people, 
you don't know how to make space for those other people because music is a conversation. Like you can't be la, 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 while other people are, you know, it doesn't work that way. You have to be able to say something and then listen, like it's, it's not about what you play. It's about what you don't play when you're in a group setting. Yeah. Yeah. Very well put. I know there's, there's so many different ways in which we're brought up that are conducive to playing with others or not like, piano players and guitar players are often taught to be virtuosos and mm. bass players and drummers are looking for people to play with all the time. Oh yeah. Yeah. Well, see, that's yeah. why it's bass player. You'll never be out of work if you're a bass player. <laughs> They've been saying that since I was a student. <laughs> then I'm starting to see like uh, five, six, seven, eight string basses. I'm like, Hey, stay in your register. And when I see a bass player go past up past the seventh fret, I'm like, all right, we have a problem. Then I bust out the octave pedal. <laughs> <laughs> stay in your register. That's good. Yeah. yeah that's but now it's, it's about listening and connecting like the drummer and bass player. Kind of, it's like a triangle, the drummer and bass player foundation. Mm-hmm. Um, and then you have like people, piano, guitar, and then everything else on top. But, you know, as a guitar player, I've gotten more work because I know how to lay out. You know, like I know, no, because it, it's, you know, they, though this is, I don't know if this is G rated or whatever, but someone once told me your left hand will get you laid. Your right hand gets you paid. Cause you can, no, it's true. <laughs> you can do all this fancy stuff and everyone's like, Oh, but then if you play in the pocket, play your part. Like when it's your time to shine, you do that. And, and that time will come. But if you're yeah. playing for everyone the whole time, you're not going to keep your gig. No. So yeah, no. just kn- knowing your part. Sometimes it could be one note, but if you just play that one note with conviction mm-hmm. and time and rhythm, like that's, you know, like David, David's music, you know, he bases it off like African and Brazilian music, which is very rhythmic. Mm. And, uh, you know, when I actually, when I was in Berkeley, I played with an Afro funk group based in New York called the Femme Nameless and Esperanza Spalding was on bass. Mm. And we could take the Chinatown bus from Boston to New York and play with this Afrobeat group, which ended up touring in Europe. That was my first time going overseas. And it was just like 20 minutes of the same note. Just saying the same thing, just you play in the pocket. And I love that kind of stuff. You know, that's like old 70s funk. You'll have like 14 piece bands and you just play your simple part, your ingredients. Other people put in their parts, their ingredients, and you you create a delicious cake or something. <laughs> that is cool. That's super cool. Do you do these kinds of arrangements now for your own music? That's what I'm trying to do. Like, I, you know, I've been working as a hired gun for so long. I have not released any of my own music, and I it's it's well overdue. And so that's kind of what I'm focusing on now is, you know, gigs have kind of dried up a little bit. And also... You know, I, I don't like to spread myself thin anymore. I'd rather work on things that are meaningful to me. And, mm. um, and you know, I want to create something of value that'll be here once I'm not on this planet anymore. You know, I want to leave some with something left. You know, I want to leave something, you know. Yes. So, so, yeah, that's really, at this point, playing behind people. I keep getting the question, like, do you have your own music? And I'm like, not yet. And, you know, I've recorded stuff over the years. I just haven't mixed or released it. So I'm going through some old hard drives. Yeah. Because um, when I used to tour in the U.S., I'd find friends, you know, all my friends kind of spread out now. So if I go to a city, oh, uh, Thomas Pridgen, amazing drummer. He's based in Oakland. We did a recording. Uh, he played drums in one of my songs when I was there. I found a friend at a studio. Oh, so, that's great. You know, I've got August off and I'm like, you know, but I need to make money too. That's the thing. So it's like a balancing act all the time. So, Yeah. 
And what kind of things extra are you doing to make money? Wow, that's a good question. Because I had that, so I had all the you know TV and film stuff lined up. So now it's just kind of you know spot dates here and there. Um, I'll probably do, be doing some mentor mentorship programs. I'm going to set up soon, next couple weeks. And there's a bass player named Mono Neon, who's a he was Prince's last bass player before he passed away, and he's got a show at Yoshi's Jazz Club in San Francisco in September. I'll be out there with him. Oh, and, cool. yeah. So just kind of doing like a whole revamp right now. And, you know, one thing that's been on the minds of myself and a lot of musicians, like gig, gigs still pay what they paid in the 80s and the 90s. And we're trying to figure out how to hmm. you know, make it so you can be a professional musician in the cities you live in and be compensated properly. Yeah. Um, one thing I did notice in New York City before I left was, you know, a lot of people are playing in these clubs that don't there, but they work. I met a guy who works for Google, but he's a great guitar player. He's making six figures. So he'll play a club gig for free. And then his <laughs> friends come and I'm like, dude, you're lowering the bar for actual pros. So there needs to be. Yeah, there, there's some, there's a lot of people doing that now. I'm like, there has to be some way to bypass that or where you have to have, I hate to say like a, a professional license to play in a venue. You know, right. I, I don't know how they do that, but because right now people have champagne expectations and beer budgets. <laughs> <laughs> That's good. <laughs> yeah. I know. It's like there's never any consensus. But if there was some way in which hmm. all the professional musicians said, no, we're not going to be available unless the rates go here. People would do something about it. Because, well, see, that, know, that's what unions. That's why I believe the I, I really hope that the American Federations of Musicians overall, the national chapter, and then all the other individual ones can somehow come together and come up with something. But I can see musicians doing that, but then you have all the people who are not professional musicians that do play instruments and are happy to, happy to fill that void for next to nothing. So there needs to be some sort of legislature or something. I don't yeah. know how they fix that, but, but it would take unity um, by musicians, but you know, what's the definition of a professional musician? <laughs> you know, so yeah. it's like it's a long way to go, but it's it's a conversation that needs to be had. And I think a lot of players, young ones now on tours, they're they're kind of being exploited. They don't realize how much they could be making on a gig because they just want to be on the big stage. And sometimes the bigger yeah. the show, the the lower the money. Uh, a piano player from Berkeley, Rustin Sorota, he actually put a good post up about making yourself valuable to your mm -hmm. clients because nowadays pop music is easier than it's ever been. Think about the arrangements Michael Jackson used to have versus not easy. The, the, three, <laughs> the three chords you can play now with, with any like major pop band. So you are easily replaceable because anybody can play a couple chords and, yeah. look, and look cute doing it. Whereas uh, he made a good point. He said, you know, he played with Josh Groban and Josh Groban, you have to know, you have to be able to read and play all different styles of music and be wow. very efficient. However, yeah. Josh Groban doesn't have a budget that say Britney Spears or Beyonce would have, but right. also music is way more complex. So to keep the top players, you have to compensate properly, but these other larger artists, you know, it's easier music, but you know, that's the, the middle class kind of disappearing. So there's, we're trying to find that balance, you know, in yeah. that. Well, speaking of parts and things like that, how much of any of the tours have you been on? Did you have 
freedom to create something or how vague were your guitar parts? How specific were your guitar parts? Uh, let's see, for example, David's stuff was very specific because it was, you know, I was tr true to the album. Um, for instance, Stop Making Sense, I was very um, interested in the tone of like Adrian Ballou was playing or Alex Weir. I watched the, the movies um, and some of those are very noticeable. I mean, there's think about like um, people who are non-musicians, but they know what they're they know what they're supposed to hear. Like uh, yeah. journey, don't, don't, journey, don't stop believing the most drunkest guy who's never played guitar before knows what the solo is supposed to sound like. So, <laughs> there, yeah. So that kind of stuff, you, you do have to play the parts. Um, I played with CeeLo Green as well. We did Rock in Rio in, in, in Brazil. And, um, yeah, he, you know, there were a lot of parts for his stuff, but then there was a lot of freedom. The band would kind of open up and jam a little bit. Hmm. So again, it depends on the, each individual, you know, artist and what they're looking for. Some people yeah. know what they want. Others don't know what they want and they give you the freedom to be yourself and just play what you want, how you want to play it. But, you know, in respect to the song as well. So, and then if they did know what they wanted, did they give you parts or did they Oh yeah, yeah. They'll give you parts and they can hear it like some. And they were written down correctly? Yeah. Whether it's a known artist or not, it, this is kind of funny. Someone put up a meme. They're like, AI cannot take musicians, the jobs of our jobs, because that would require a client being able to specify what they want. And there's so many artists who don't know how to explain what they hear it in here, but they can't, they can't like translate it to you. Um, so that can kind of be hard, but it's fun to work with artists that are actually musicians themselves. Yes. Then they have a better, you know, way of explaining to you what they want. Yes. Yeah. I think a lot of people think they're just going to be able to play whatever they want, whenever they want. And if they're not used to playing in a band, like you were saying, they don't know how to fit in. Yeah. Yeah. And then, you know, they're constantly playing because they're used to constantly keeping something going for themselves and they don't realize no, there's a whole band now you can lay out here and there and that and would yeah. actually be better <laughs> yeah no and it's and actually something recently i think you know guitar is one of the hardest instruments people don't understand that like we have the x and y axis it's not very linear it's in fourths of all things and then um there's so many different styles different ways of playing finger picking country like People see me as a guitar player, like, oh, you can play this. Look at this crazy metal song. I'm like, I'm not a metal player. I can, <laughs> oh, I'm more of like funk and rock or this country, like twangy, like picking kind of thing. I don't do that. But they're like, oh, well, it's guitar. So you must be able to do that. But it's <laughs> you know, as a bass player, you're playing the low note. I mean, there are different styles of playing bass, but it's not as broad as the guitar. There's so many different. Like, I wouldn't ask. West Montgomery to play Eruption, you know? Right. <laughs> it might sound cool, but it won't sound the way you think it would. Or you wouldn't expect Paul Simon to play on uh, Giant Steps, you know? <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. But people, again, people who aren't musicians don't usually understand that. Like, it, like as a, you know, you never stop learning and guitar is just such a complex instrument. And yeah. actually I just, um, there's this guitarist, Ella Feingold, um, who went to Berkeley for a short while. And she came up with this, well, well, some other people have told her about this tuning. Actually, Jeff Lockhart, who plays at Wally's a lot. There's this, um, it's, it's alternate, oh, what's it called? Alternate standard tuning, where, let me try to explain. I have one of my guitars tuned like this, where you flip the strings. So the high E string is, uh, is down here. Oh, wow. 
And then you take the B string and put it where the A string is and tune it to A. So then you have the high E, high A, regular D, regular G, and then you take the A string and make that low B down here, a low B down here and low E here. So it flips the entire sound, the whole invert, everything's inverted. Wow. It's, it's standard, but inverted tuning. That's interesting. So it's really, it's not good for like soloing, but it's really cool for rhythm. It, it really, it broadens all the inversions, all the chords you can play. Yeah. And you're using the same thickness of strings? Yeah, yeah. It's the same strings, just flipped tune over. Them. Yeah. Tip, tip them, tune them differently. Yeah. I'll send you the link to that. Because I, so I took one of my guitars and then. Um, but you, you actually swap the strings physically so that the thinner strings are. Oh, yeah. You swap the strings physically and you have to actually flip the nut, too. Because otherwise. I was say, it won't fit. Yeah. 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 So, I, so I actually did that with one of my guitars and it's, it just. Oh my, oh my God. Cause I was kind of feeling in a rut musically with guitar. I'm like, huh, I need something new and I don't want to buy pedals. I'm trying to get away from those things. Like yeah. I like, like your tone is in your hands. Um, Absolutely. Like Joe Bonamassa. I saw him play at the bitter end in New York a few, several months ago. And the other guy just had this huge spaceship of pedals and it looked like a whole <laughs> guitar center. And Joe was just there with twin reverb chord guitar. Yeah, and he, he had so much more to say and so much more going on. Yeah, and it's just really cool to hear. So um, that's uh, for a while. I was just like, oh, what can I do with guitar that would kind of open my mind up and like reawaken my senses? So flipping these strings, like just really, it's mind blowing. That's done for you. Yeah, yeah. I'll send you a that's link. That's cool. Yeah, yeah I want to hear it. Want to yeah. see it and hear it. Yeah, that sounds interesting. Did you ever? I know when we were studying together. Um, you had, hadn't been in alternate tunings much, but that's kind of one of the reasons I love alternate tunings so much is that I can forget everything and just put my hands anywhere and hunt and peck for some kind of a sound that starts to fill out a chord that makes me feel a certain way. And then yeah. each of the six voices feels independent. So I think, yeah. oh, this note should go down, this one should go up. And I'm just literally hunting and pecking for the chords. And these beautiful things happen. Oh, even yeah. if I even write that way in standard tuning. Very often I'm not thinking, oh, yes, people that major seven should go to the C minor yeah, seven. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it, it doesn't come to me that way. It comes to me first through a feeling and a sound. And especially if I play piano, it's just so big and it swells and the harmonics and the overtones. It's like, oh, you know, like you just, you feel your chakras spin, you know, it's just oh, so yeah. amazing. So if you wrote that way, you could completely free yourself because you could just follow what feels good, you know? Exactly. Exactly. And so, like I said, I, I felt like I was kind of in a rut, like an audible rut, like even like listening to new songs. I'm just like, that's why I like to get recommendations from friends. I'm like, Hey, what band should I check out? Yeah. Um, then, you know, I don't, I don't like Spotify or any of that stuff. Cause it, it doesn't pay well for musicians. So I, I, you know, it's hard to get, you know, I have like records I listen to. I don't like to, <laughs> You know, the streaming, again, streaming was a big thing. Um, yeah. As I was leaving Berkeley, the whole industry was flipping on its side because Napster had just started. So th what the industry was when I went into Berkeley was not what it was once I left. So that was a big thing. And, you know, wow. streaming. And so, like, it, it is cool to have access to so much music now. But, you know, it, it doesn't feel great knowing that the artists aren't being compensated fairly for that. So how did that know. affect some of the major artists you're playing with? I mean, they went from selling lots and lots of merch to all of a sudden 
all your physical CDs and or albums don't matter. Well, yeah, you, you can't make a you can't make a living off of just selling music now. And I think Snoop Dogg came out with this thing. He said, you know, when I was coming out, the numbers made sense. He yeah. said, I had 10 percent. If I sold 10 million copies, I made one million dollars. And now it's like you get one million streams and you make six hundred dollars. So it's the, the math doesn't make sense. And, you know, when when all the illegal downloading started with Napster and record labels start, started losing money, the first play, the first thing they cut were bands and live shows. So that's why around 2006 to 10, you mostly saw singers with DJs and dancers. Dancers wow. would go out and play for next to nothing. They didn't have a union. DJs were cheaper than a whole band and bringing equipment. So around that time, I remember like bands started cutting, you know, cutting live shows became something else and more visual with just like lights and dancers and a DJ in the corner. Mm. Um, just in recent years, I've started seeing more bands, you know, in, you know, rock, rock bands always have musicians, but, you know, like R&B and pop, the, now they have bands again. It's starting to come back and, you know, like Beyonce had her all-female band around 2007 or 8. Um, but then also like women make less than men. They all think, <laughs> really? They all, yeah. <laughs> oh, hey, you did. Oh, wait, I'm, I'm, all right, I'm, I'm preaching to the choir, but no, that's, um, uh. Now you're working twice. You're working twice as hard for half as much, and I realize that you got to like fight for things, and it's like it shouldn't have to be such a battle. And that's a just another energy waster. And and yeah. you know they, they try to cut corners. A lot of people try to cut corners, and you know we're all out here trying to make a living. So you know I I I, I used to want to like pretend to be a guy, like just erase all my social media and just be like, yeah, I'm Matt and I play guitar. Hire yeah. me. I'd be yeah. the one to show up. <laughs> Like a, like a blind audition, pretty much. Right, right. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, because those have made a difference in history, as as we know. But then sometimes it's a novelty, though. Like, they, I, I don't want to be a female music, like, I, and I don't like to be called girl guitar player. I'm not a girl. I'm, I know. I'm, and if you don't call a guy who plays guitar a boy guitar player or a, a man band. A boy band is in sync. A girl band is like L7. That's what, you know, that's kind of, the, the, the terminology always kind of like, yeah. Didn't, it didn't sit great with me, but, um, and yeah. I always wanted the attention to be on the music and on the musicianship. And exactly. I've always been known as a musician's musician. So musicians <laughs> get me and they yeah. really enjoy what I do, but everybody else, it's like when I was putting out first albums and getting radio play and marketing and, you know, articles and reviews and all that stuff in 1989 for my first album with too true. Um, it was like, we've already added a girl band this week to the playlist, or we've already added a girl to the radio station. It was like, what? You know, yeah, it's like, like fitting the status quo, like, oh, like it's, it's um, not virtue signaling. What is it? It's, um, oh, we, we filled that quota. And then yeah, think, like, well, here, here's one we've done enough, but then nothing changes systemically yeah. for behind the scenes, you know. But what was funny was before the Beatles there wasn't even a formula to say we got to find the next four guys. Yes. They, they started that and there wasn't anything about being young people making decisions and having anything to say. It was all about older people and Frank Sinatra and, you know, all these kinds of wonderful artists, but they weren't super, super young artists, you know, then the yeah. Beatles came along and everybody, every major label and, and management company has thought it's about a young person ever since. And that's yeah. not true either, you know? Well, then, you know, you think of someone like Bonnie Raitt, 
she didn't get her, she, you know, she didn't really get signed. So what, she was like 41, 40, 44, something like that. So well, she didn't break through till nick of time. Yes. Yes. And, and she said the reason for that was finally friends of hers became heads of labels. Yeah. Yeah. So they can decide anything they want. They can market anything they want. They can mm-hmm. sell anything they want. It's the it's gatekeeping. Just, yeah. It's just yeah, like, it's, it's just whatever they decide they're going to do. And when they say, we don't know how to market this, that never made any sense to me because when you used to go to tower records, it was like, here's classical, here's vocal, which was Broadway and, you know, Barbara Streisand and those wonderful things. And then it was everything else. So when yeah. they said, we don't know how to market this, it's like, what are you talking about? I'm in the everything else. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. <laughs> so funny. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, you know, have you heard of um, Dana Wild and brain training, EFT or the RAS and some of those kinds of things? No, no. Because as much as we're all in this together, there is this individual attracting like law of attraction and those kinds of things. And the more you can focus on what you actually want and the things that you want to do, the universe sort of molds itself around you and things start to happen in new and interesting, magical ways. It sounds a little crazy, uh, but I think more people create what they're doing by focusing on what they actually want rather than any union or anything else, you know? Oh yeah, yeah, hundred percent. So if you look at if you look at uh, Dana Wild's work, she's talking to entrepreneurs about how having how to make money the fun way, you know, mm-hmm. by feeling good. And well, you know, they say what if you if you do what you love to do, you'll never work a day. Uh, you'll never work a day in your life. True. And sometimes, then, like I know, I agree. Like I sometimes I'll get in a gig where I'm I'm a well, it must be the Capricorn in me. logistics like if things are like kind of like disorganized behind the scenes it makes it hard for me to just want to play the music or you know but once I'm on stage I'm fine because I love playing but Mm. you know if you have like a smooth team and communication is good again I think musicians are great communicators Mm. because because that's what we do but you know um, you have people who who you have to work with like manage management or people higher up and they're trying to put together something and you know, they might forget, like, you know, have blinders on, not see something that we've probably seen because we've been doing this forever. Like, mm. I've played with so many different artists and I've had, you know, they come and go. Some artists have a one year career, some have 10, 20 years. And no matter what, we're still doing what we do. We're just doing it for different clients and different people. Yeah. But yeah. It's, um, you know, being able to transform and be, you know, to create good situations. You know, if you build a good team. Right. And good people behind you. Um, and, you know, I feel like I'm lacking that sometimes, honestly, just cause I'm so spread out. Like, you know, you have your core people at Ber- Berkeley is everywhere, which I really like, like the, the network is strong. Every city I go to, I find somebody that knows someone from there or has been there. But, you know, as we've well, gotten older, like I think after I left, I moved to LA, a lot of people that were at Berkeley the same time I was came to LA as well. Oh, so, cool. you know, start having families and kids and they still, you know, they either move out of LA, LA is rough. You know, it can be a hard city to break mm. in and sort of find your footing. And so, um, you know, it just spread out. I see people moving to different States and that that's just ongoing. But, yeah. you know, for me, it's like having that team of strong people with, um, the same vision, you know, mm. and I have those friends, but they all live in different cities. Yeah. But 
you know, there's ways of doing things even remotely now, which is just so great. And yes. uh, that's cool. But as, as an independent musician yourself, uh, you're like a, a, a mini entrepreneur. Yes. You're creating all of this for yourself. And this RAS thing is the reticular activating system. It's a thing in the brain that they've studied. Brain trainers talk about, and they, they say that whatever you're thinking about and focusing on, you get more of, and your brain brings you to that. So if we start believing the jobs are drying up or everything really is in bad shape and things are shifting and we really don't know what's happening and it looks like it's all falling apart, your brain tries to keep bringing you more of that. You yeah, know? yeah. And even well, though those things are going out on a, on a big global way, there are individual things that can happen. You know, mm -hmm. like sometimes the worst times, most there are people who actually – make the most money during that time or whatever, because oh. things are shifting, but they don't believe they're going to be part of something that bottoms out. And it, like, they don't have to jump off the building. Like they can figure out how to, how to make something work for themselves. Well, and that sounds very Warren Buffett of you. He says like, when everyone else is fearful, be hopeful. And then when everyone else is hopeful, you know, like when the market's down, that's yeah, yeah. to get in. But yeah, the, the RAS is very interesting. I mean, you may have noticed this in like normal life. I, the biggest example I can remember is like, having to move a lot and mm -hmm. looking for boxes. And so you're always looking for boxes because you have to pack and you have to move. So I remember walking down the street and thinking, oh my God, there's a really good box. And I was like, wait, I've already moved and unpacked. I don't need to be looking for boxes anymore. <laughs> yeah. But like even right now, if I told you to look around your room, you would just see your room. But if I said, look for everything that's red, all of a sudden, boom, 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 boom all the red things would pop out. And that's how the RAS works. Yes. <laughs> uh, if you say, I'm going to look for opportunities or I'm going to find a bass player or I need to fill these two sentences in my songs or I need to find another gig or I need to make more money, your brain goes, okay, I'm on it. And then all of a sudden, something happens which feels very coincidental where you meet just the right person or you get just the right phone call or just the coolest email comes through. You know, well, it's like doors close and open, you know, it's like, exactly. Well, one thing I've, um, <laughs> excuse me, when I've done clinics and talked to students about the psychology of auditioning, because I used to go and I go to an audition if I, and I, I leave feeling shattered. I'm like, mm. I, I suck. I don't want to do this anymore. I quit. I feel horrible. I, mm. I, I can't believe I didn't get this gig, but you, you, you get everything that's meant for you. And Yes. What I train my brain to do is now when I go to an audition, I treat it as a, a gig. So that way the anxiety of, oh, I'm auditioning for something is gone. I'm like, oh, oh I'm good. going to play, oh, I'm going to play this gig. And if you, you know, if the gig didn't go great, oh well, there's another one coming. And so, <laughs> now, so now I'm not so it really when I think of going to an audition, I think of it as a performance. That's versus, so cool. Versus like, oh, I'm trying to prove myself to something. I'm already I've already proven myself to myself. So I like that. I like yeah. that. Yeah. I, it helped so much. I don't like even performing now. Yes. I think I did a show the other day and a lot of the players were younger. We're about to start. They're like, are you, do you get nervous before shows? I'm like, no, I'm, I'm, I'm I always, I always hold my hands like this now. Oh yeah. I've heard about this. I love, yeah. All that. Like I, I, I can feel the little vibrations in my fingertips. I'm like, no, I'm excited. I'm the most normal. I'm the most normal on stage. It's my comfort zone. And all through rehearsals, because I've been having back issues, I'm, I was sitting really still and just quiet in rehearsals, learning the parts and everyone else, you know, kind of bouncing around. I'm like, when I'm, so I think they thought I'd be timid on stage, but once I was on stage, 
head up looking you know just I, I felt free oh yeah you come alive you're amazing what I, I love that you're talking about this though because it sounds like you've done some work for inner validation like you're not yes. looking to be validated on the outside even though someone's trying to hire you you're not trying to be anything and everything they want you're saying do I have what you're looking for is it a fit Yes. Yes. It's not, it's not like, Oh, let me prove myself to you. It's like, this is right. what I, this is the product I have. If you're interested, here it is. If not, you know, there's a ton of other things. Yeah. Yeah. So what did you do to overcome if you ever had it in the beginning? Um, like people would want to know probably about stage fright. Uh, I actually, Oh, Oh, uh, Livingston Taylor, his class. Yes. Remember I yes. took his, a stage performance skills class. I remember I was so scared to get up. It was at, that was at the 1140 building. And one W. There were, oh, one W. Yes, yes. And we'd have to um, get up in front of the class and just recite the alphabet. And I forgot it. I was like shaking. And I'm really? like, oh, yeah, this was oh, a long time ago. But I remember like, how did I mess up the alphabet? Like, but just standing in front of people. So I guess how I got over that was I just... The way I cared about it was I stopped caring. I just, and also playing, play, having, and remembering you're not, you know, well, unless you're playing by yourself on stage, you're, you're with a team, with your friends, you're having a good time. And you're, you're, I connect with the audience. I start looking at people because you're giving them something and you're feeding off the audience too. Yes. That, that, uh, for instance, this kind of made it hard with David Burns show. We're looking at the audience smiling and the energy they give us, we give back to them, uh, whether they're standing or sitting. But when the show came back, for the second round on Broadway, everyone had to wear a mask. So all of a sudden the curtain, because oh. of COVID and the Broadway rules, curtain comes up for the first time in like a year, excuse me, and this and this is what you see. Like, uh, just. <laughs> Whole so audience. So it was hard, people were trying, you could see them trying to smile with their eyes, but um, it was harder to connect with people. I, when, it, when it came up, I was like, this feels so weird, like an episode of Black Mirror. and. Um, and so that, that, that was like a huge hurdle at first when the show came, you know, when the sure. show came back because, you know, for years, my whole, that was the first time in my entire life I occurred to come up and everyone's got a mask on and we were in a whole different world at that point. And that was a big like, reality check. Was the whole band wearing masks too or no? Oh no, no, we didn't wear masks on stage. That was the thing. We had a COVID compliance manager and we'd have to test every day. And how you did know, you do? Oh, excuse me. Did you stay well? Oh, yeah. I mean, I had COVID early on, like July 2020, like before all the vaccines and stuff came out. So, oh, I mean, my God, it was. Yeah, it was horrible. But I, I just remember the way I know I realized it as I went into a coffee shop and I felt kind of out of it. it. felt like it was it felt like a hangover. I was just like very like lethargic. And then I was like, I don't smell anything. And it was like fresh coffee beans everywhere. And I'm like, I don't think I'm well. And then it just progressed. And it was like two weeks of it was like one symptom a day, but very severe for about two weeks. And, um, Whoa. You know, like, like I said before, the, this was before the vaccine was out. And I was just like, you know, I tested for antibodies after that and that they were high. So I, it proved I had had COVID. Wow. Um, uh, oh so yeah, it was, it was crazy. That was the only time I had, I mean, knock on wood, but <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah. But what uh, you're saying about performing is so cool because when we're on stage, it's not about us. It's not about, yeah. hey, look at me, look how amazing I am. It's, wow, there you are. Yes, yeah. Most people 
go to a show to be entertained and to be taken out of their own head and to that's why I say we're doctors we're essential workers people leave happier and and are rejoiced and you know it's it's how many letters I get from people like, oh, I was having a bad day. Thank you. Your show changed my life or 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 seeing right. a little bit in the audience with their eyes big and bright. You know, that's um, it's just such a good feeling to help people. Yeah. You know, like we're this is their they're coming into our office and we're providing a service. A service. And it's not like, you know, it's it's not you have to let your ego go because it's not it's not about that. And if you could just say, look, I love this guitar. I love these songs. I love being here. I'm so happy we're all together. I love being in this band. And you just give that kind of energy and your intent is to connect with folks. That's it. That's your job. Yeah. You know, yeah. of course you show up prepared. Of course you play and sing. Well, that's, mm-hmm. you know, the first steps, but the, the being there and giving of yourself is what they're looking for. They're looking yes. for that magic. Exactly. And magic and a, and a message too. You know, some, Mm. That's that's the thing that's like like I said, the bigger the show gets, the more corporate it potentially can become. And True. that's where you have to be careful because you can have a wonderful message with the show, but if it's not wholeheartedly believed behind the scenes and up top, it you know, it doesn't feel authentic. And for me, authenticity mm. is very important. Like, you know, talk the talk and walk the walk. So well, I, I get myself in trouble that way because I want everybody to feel as deeply about things as I do or to have at least some of the same scruples about it as I do. But there are different people uh, working different jobs. Like the drummer has to take care of the drums and I have to take care of the guitar. So some of the admin people let's have to take care and look at the bottom line, you know? So of course they need to be bean counters or they're not going to be as interested in the heartfelt whatever message that I'm thinking I'm promoting. They have to sell it or whatever. But as long as their part doesn't conflict with yes. the whole, like then at least we're making a whole puzzle or a whole quilt and we're doing this together and we realize the importance of each other. I don't want to say one part is more important than another because even some of the major yeah, artists... without the other. Yes, they, even the major artists have, you know, major banks bankrolling the underwriting for all the insurance so that the artist doesn't take the hit. So it's, it's, it's wild. Well, that's why they call it music business. Music with the lowercase m, business with the all uppercase. You know, it's yeah. But I'm really shocked at what the business has done to itself. I I just can't even wrap my head around it. Some days of how yeah bizarre they've made it. And um, well, I would think like as time passes that more music. And this is why I think musicians should be. You know, once you're done playing, or if you're not playing as much anymore, you don't want to be on stage. You know, I've always been interested in being a tour manager because I really? love to organize. I love things being, because I, I know how I would want to be treated or how, how, how I, what, what would make me comfortable on the road and like things that I would, would want to be like, like overseen. You know, I, I really, I really am an organized person when it comes to like trips and planning, like that stuff. Like I see sometimes something's an oversight, like, oh, I forgot to do this or oh, I forgot to do that. But I'm like, I know I would, I wouldn't miss it because I, I wouldn't miss that part because I would, I've been there and I've seen it be missed and seeing what, what can happen if that's not in place. So, so I think manager does that. Yeah. Yeah. I think more musicians, you know, even, or even like as executives and music labels, like I would hope that, but you also have to have like a business acumen as well, you know, as you know, hmm knowing how to follow, you know, 
to help the musicians as well as the clients and the patrons. Mm. But again, like I said, because it's like, you know, the middle class seems to be disappearing in that. So it has to be more evenly dispersed. I mean, I'm coming back to the writer's strike, what's going on now where people yeah. are making uh, hundreds of mil- hundreds of millions of dollars a year off of the backs of people making less than 26000 a year. Wow. It's, uh, yeah, there's like a huge... When did the strike actually start? Uh, Writers Guild strike started uh, about 80 days ago. Wow. And then, then SAG, the Screen Actors Guild, started about a week ago. Wow. Yeah. And then potentially the, the crew on Broadway, the I, IAST, I forget the abbreviation, that was going to start about a week ago. That would have completely shut Broadway down, which wow. would have taken a huge, which would have been a huge hit because with no, no yeah. new TV shows coming out, no new movies being produced. People are either going to syndicated television or they're going to start going out and seeing live shows again, which would be like Broadway and music. And uh, one musician made a good point. He said, with all these TV shows shut down, more people will look to make live music. Musicians, do not undercut yourself because people are going to go spend money to see live shows. So make sure you're getting compensated properly. Because you know, yeah. I mean, people have people want entertainment. People, as as much as they kind of say sometimes that music is a hobby and not important and not necessary. Why, hello, who's this? This is Romeo. Hi, Romeo. It's adorable. He's like, hey, it's three o'clock here. It's time for my <laughs> dinner. Oh yeah. <laughs> you used to eat at like five. I don't know why yeah. you get hungrier and hungrier every day. Oh, so cute. Yeah, he's a good yeah. guy. Yeah. No, so, so so they're trying to say. Don't lower your don't yeah don't lower your rates and um you know after the pandemic a lot of companies or they would use the excuse well the pandemic but they had PPP loans to stay afloat mm. and they, I've seen instances where they use COVID or the pandemic as a reason to pay less but I'm like hey you've saved money for two years you know people are dying to spend money and 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 see performances and you know the the little guy musicians shouldn't take the hits. No, you know, after no. Being, being out of work for so long. And that's why I'm very, you know, I, I implore people to hire live mus- musicians. And, uh, you know, I know David had a show recently where there was a chance there wouldn't be live music. Oh, wow. He was going to use pre-recorded music, but, you know, the union and a few members and myself, we all reached out saying, you know, this, you know, well, it was a union sanctioned house too. So, um, you know, you had to kind of, you had to employ a certain amount of musicians. So, all, you right. know, you know, ultimately they did end up hiring some musicians for the show, which is good because it, you know, gives everyone work, gives gives people work and goes into the pension fund. Yeah. So. I've, never, I've never been one that buys into the crazy artist or the uh, baby immature person is the artist or the musician. Um, there are a lot of intelligent musicians and a lot of very, very smart uh, musicians that are business oriented as well. Mm-hmm. and. I don't like that it's been the history all along to just take advantage of folks and have them sign away their publishing and, yeah. and treat them like their babies and manage all their money because they can't manage themselves and take away all their power. Well, that's and the thing. Yeah, you have to know your rights. Yeah, yeah. That's, and, that's uh, education. I think with unions, too, if they would provide that type of stuff, because a lot of musicians in the union, they didn't go to Berkeley. They, they didn't go to music schools. They didn't learn this stuff but they want to play music professionally. But if there was some sort of course 
to explain writing and publishing and, and, mm-hmm. and copyrights, you know, save, you know, having your stuff documented and, and, you know, yeah. that's important. And, you know, like artists, like, you know, David's never, like David's never been a hired gun. I never thought about that until like a few weeks ago. I'm like, you know, going from art school to New York in the late seventies and then getting signed. And so like, I've you know, talked to him before and I'm like, I, I, sometimes we, we, we wouldn't, wouldn't make sense. I'm like, Oh wait, he's never, as far as I know, he's never like been like a side person to someone. Yes. And, and there are okay. a lot of people like that. They can only be the lead person. They can only yes. write their own yeah. things. Or even Tom Petty in his band said, we couldn't play other people's music. It just didn't sound good. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> we could only write our own. But I love what Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers did. Oh, yeah, yeah. But, you know, um, when I was a new teacher at Berkeley, Gary Burton had the only business music of business course, and he let me sit in on it. And every single thing he taught us each week was actually happening to me at the time. And every mistake he said to avoid was presented to me. I was signed to a major label. He said, they're going to lie to you and tell you you're just amazing and you're the best thing that they've ever heard. They did that. They're going to tell you you don't need a lawyer because it's for this one song compilation album. You do need a lawyer. Uh, They're going to try to talk you out of getting a lawyer. And I was the only band uh, artist with my band that got paid for being on that, that because we were uh, affiliated with all the right things that he told us to affiliate with and he saved us. And he was the only person teaching this. And this made me so furious because I graduated in 1982 from Berkeley and it was like, they taught me how to build and model plane. It was this Uh amazing creation you know, wonderful model plane. It was gorgeous and it could do anything, but it didn't know how to fly without the business, you know? And so I was raving and complaining that we needed more business courses. And then like 20 years later, one of my students came in and said, oh, I'm so busy and I can't practice. And I have all these damn business classes. And I, I Berkeley's all about the money and the business. And I was like, Oh, you know, like <laughs> you don't realize how much that saved me. <laughs> yeah, it's gonna it's gonna help you in the long run. Um, you know, it was it was weird being at Berkeley the time I was because I auditioned on a cassette tape. All my class projects were on mini disc and CDs, and then at the end, like I said, Napster was just starting, so it was a very transformative. Uh, um, technology was moving quicker than humanity could, and <laughs> but, but no, so I'm learning. I'm taking some of these courses, but. The, the the world outside of Berkeley was changing so quickly that so I was kind of I got a little bit of a shock when I came out because of what happened with the, the downloading and the labels. Nobody was prepared for that hit that came. Yeah. And nobody would have known because we were we were just learning what we knew already. Wow. Not on top as it was on top as much as it could be, but it would take like yeah. If, we're there, if we're there teaching, we're not in the field seeing what's happening in real time. Right, right. There's no way of knowing unless you have like a, a bridge or an ambassador or something, someone coming in and saying, hey, this industry, you know, I it, it, I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, but I remember when um, they had to start having courses for some of the professors to keep up with like technology was coming out quickly, like new. Well, they always have things that we continue okay. learning constantly. Yeah. Okay, cool. cool. Yeah, that's good. That's a good thing. But that, yeah. that brings me up uh, to a, a question I had on my list here was that um, how did you feel 
Berkeley prepared you for the real world? Like what's some of your experiences in the real world that were completely different than Berkeley, where Berkeley uh, maybe didn't get it right or wasn't up to date? Uh, well, I'd say honestly, mostly uh, like just being around my peers, the social skills, mm. uh, meeting different people, different cultures. Cause we, you know, we all come from one place and yeah. Berkeley is like all places. It was like something I'd never seen before. Oh. Even though the city I'm from was very diverse. I mean, it was segregated with like neighborhoods, but the schools I went to, I went to public schools, but one was a global education school. One was an art school. Um, so I think just Berkeley providing the facility to be able to meet with different people in one space. Um, from what I hear, the school has changed quite a bit with like population wise. It's doubled now. It's about 6,000. And is that true? I probably it is. Right, it was <laughs> think, like, well, it was 3000 when I was there and half of them were guitar players. Now it's 6000 and half are singers. Yeah, they were trying to uh, even out the male to female ratio. And so they stopped taking so many guitar players and brought in yeah. vocals. Well, they can just get more female guitar players. They're out there. But something, another thing, the, the writer's strike that happened around 2008, 2009, that's the last time the strike happened, that gave birth to reality shows because they're unscripted. So all these reality shows started coming out around 2009, 10, 11, including mm. um, American Idol, the voice, all these things. And this is why all of a sudden everyone wanted to be singers. Oh yeah. I know a lot, I, a lot of people on those TV shows tell me they went, they'd say they went to Berkeley. Oh like, yeah. Oh yeah. 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 I've had a, quite a few students who were auditioning for those things. Mm -hmm. Yeah. 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 So it's, it's crazy that the whole transition that happened. Earlier we were talking about reading music and such. And I remember a very funny story from grammar school. I'm nine, 10 years old. And the teacher asks the class, does anybody read music? And I raise my hand. So she brings in this notebook and it's got all these different songs in it that she wants me to teach the class to sing. And all they have is chord symbols over the words mm -hmm. and no bar lines. Oh, wow. <laughs> no tempo. And, you know, I don't know if it's three, four or four, four. And I certainly don't know the melody. And she says to me, oh, can you play this? And I said, yeah, but I don't know when. I'm supposed to switch and how many beats. And she's like, I thought you said you could read music. <laughs> oh, wow. <laughs> but um, boom, bah. <laughs> well, you know, if you like, I'm not going to lie. I'm not the strongest, as strong of a reader as I used to be. And that's something, again, I'm challenging myself. Angie, pick up a real book, play along with it. Cause you have to kind of force yourself. And uh, like I said, it's a very strong tool to have because if you can read your, your workload will double. You know, wow. you'll have, you'll have more opportunities. Um, uh, for instance, like uh, was it Ricky Minor, music director for American Idol back in the early 2000s. Hmm. And I think he was I was auditioning for Catherine McPhee and he said something to me, he said, do you have eyes? And I didn't know what that meant at first. I was in my early 20s. I'm like, what? I'm like, yeah, I have two. <laughs> <laughs> but he means, do you, do you read music? Yeah. Like some of those shows, you have to learn like hundreds of songs in a week. And sometimes wow. they'll, they'll change the song like that. And then they just put new sheet music out, boom, go. Or yeah. studio sessions are like that. Um, I did something with, like for a Disney thing at Power Station like a year ago. And, you know, again, guitar players have a reputation. You know, they're like, they don't, they say to get a guitar player to stop playing, just put music in front of them. Right. Or they turn it down. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But um, no, so it is an important tool to have. So again, something I need to brush up on. Um, 
but a lot of people don't even know how to write for guitar still. So that yeah, the register register is really important. a lot of times. Then you have to be the one that interprets mm-hmm. for them and makes them look good. Oh yeah, and yeah. sort of read like, their I mind as to what they're asking player. you to do. Yeah, yeah. No, I mean, I can I can tell when a piano player wrote the chords out, like they'll write something. I'm like, I'm like, is that? I said, did the piano player write this? Like, yeah, because <laughs> of the voicing is specific yeah. and it doesn't yeah. fit on the guitar. Yeah, yeah, it doesn't make yeah, it doesn't make sense, but um. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, just writing for any instrument. I did take a class like that at Berkeley. I can't, it was like an orchestration class. I can't remember the name of the class, but like mm. we're writing in like alto, bass, treble, tenor. Oh, we're writing in all the clefs. Learning. Well, yeah, you're arranging classes after you, you, you write four okay. horn charts. Yeah, yeah. You write for the and... I love that stuff because it's, you're, yeah. you're writing in respect to each instrument and learning yes. ranges of each instrument. Yeah. And I think that's something really important, especially if you're gonna make orchestrations. It just makes makes you look so much not like an asshole because you know you give someone a chart and they're like, I this isn't for my instrument, but you know, it just <laughs> it shows respect for each player and that you yeah. took time into you know making their job easier. It's true, it's really true. You know, a, another funny thing that happened, talk about being kind to an audience or allowing them to think something that wasn't, I guess, like there's that joke, how do you get to Carnegie Hall and people yell out practice? Well, <laughs> I was at Symphony Hall and I was listening to Jane Miller play with a band that she was playing with in one of the function rooms. And then mm-hmm. after that gig was over, we all went and got to listen to the symphony. And of course it was an amazing night, but because it was the symphony, I had dressed up all in black and I was in nice shoes and some nice slacks and I had a, a black jacket on and she needed to go get her car to get the, the gear. And I said, I'll wait with your gear. So I'm standing outside with all this gear <laughs> outside for Symphony Hall and everybody's piling out going, you were wonderful tonight. Oh, oh my God, you were amazing. And they're all wanting to shake my hand because they thought I had played in the symphony because I'm standing there with all these instruments and obviously gear that looks like you play with the symphony or something. And yeah. And I was like, I, uh, 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 thank you. Thank you so much for coming. We just love so much that you were here. And thank you so much for telling me. And I was like, uh, and I told my friend Sandy Cop because she played in the symphony that night. And I said, I, I didn't know what to do. She said, you did the right thing. You know, like you don't want to tell these folks they just spent a ton of money. Now they're making a big mistake. Yeah, yeah. You want to? You should have signed some autographs. <laughs> yeah, right, right. Well, I, you know, I I toured for seventeen years with uh, different Beatle tribute bands. One that did the uh, touring years and playing the songs from nineteen sixty three to nineteen seventy in the Beatles catalog when they were together, and then from nineteen seventy on, I was four years with another band that played all the solo music, and oh, wow. so. Every time we perform somewhere and it was theaters all over the place and tons and tons of people, people would come up and want autographs. And I'd think, what are they wanting me to sign? They don't know me from anywhere. You want me to just say the Beatles or you want me to say George Harrison? Yeah, sign George. I'm going to write my name. You're going to know what this even says or means, you know, like, and and little kids thought we saw the Beatles, you know, and that was funny. Yeah, that's cool. (laughs) Yeah. 
This is great. I'm happy to talk to you. This is awesome. Oh, well, thank you. I'm so happy that you're doing so well and you've done so many cool things. And I want you to just keep imagining yourself doing more and more great things because your heart's in the right place and you do such uh, uh, beautiful, even expressing of what you're feeling as you're in it, you know, uh, this is probably the longest we've ever had a chance to chat because in the, so. in the lessons you were really busy and on tour and doing things then. And, um, you know, we didn't get to get out into the things that really matter. We had to just, as soon as you'd come back, I'd be like, take care of the requirements. And so, yeah, this has really been great. Yes. Likewise. We'll have to see each other in person soon. Told you I'll come back to the East coast. This is a good time to come Like winter is no, no. That's if I could just be in LA in like December and January and then be wherever December, January, February. Yeah, just be in LA those three months and then be right. East Coast the rest of the time. I think I'd be happy. Yeah. I think you can do that. Yeah, I, yeah, I will do. I, I'm visualizing it. There you go. Visualize that and bring yourself there. Yeah, all these opportunities start to come as soon as you start to imagine. I want to do such and such. I wonder what it should be, you know. And then things start to take shape because you're. You're open to the possibilities. Yes, kind yes, of thing. exactly. But definitely check out Dana Wilde or Brooke Castillo or... Um, oh, yeah, I wrote that down. Oh, good. R-S. Yeah. Wait, what the was RAS. Look up the RAS. It's, it's fascinating. Wait, it was Brooke who? I have Dana Wilde. Who's Brooke? Brooke... Uh, it looks like Castillo, but oh, it's okay. Castillo. Okay, yep, got it. And, um, yeah, there's so many people. That movie, The Secret, really opened me up in oh, 2006. Yeah. Yeah, that was really cool. My favorite teachers. Yep, that was really good too. And um, the the people I like the most on YouTube, uh, Esther Hicks talks about the teachings of Abraham. And and that's really freeing. And it seems to be the most interesting, loving, understanding, compassionate take on this human existence that I've ever heard. So I really get a kick out of that kind of stuff. And then like, just because we play guitar, we know it's all about just tuning yourself yes. thousands of times a day, right? Like Jim Carrey always says, you know, we just have to keep tuning ourselves to be our best self. And if we're not up for it, take a nap, you know? Yeah. <laughs> no, that's true. Play until you feel like resting, rest until you feel like playing. Yeah, that's a really good uh, quote, too. I got to mm-hmm. get her name right to quote her. But um, yeah, this has really been sweet. Thank yeah, you absolutely. so much. Oh, thank you. Thank you. I appreciate it. Anything we didn't get to that you wish you could have told us? a lot of stuff, but I'll think about it for next time. We'll save it for part two. Okay. Yeah, sure. There could be a part two. Yeah. Well, yeah. When I get some music out there, because that's, uh, like I said, like my my summer work is wiped out. So I'm just figuring out, A, how to survive, which will happen, but how to, like, to make the best of this this time, too. Like, you know, during everything was shut down, but... I wasn't feeling as creative at first because I was like, what the hell's going on? Will it ever come back to how it was? Are we okay? Like, you know, all that uncertainty was there. And then I saw other people like, oh, I'm using this time to relax. And I just learned a new language. And I'm like, what? Come out there fluent in something. So, oh, good. Uh, so that's, uh, well, that's going to be my August now. Cause it seemed, I think I have a gig on July 31st and I have my next gig after that on September 2nd. So okay, I'm looking where, at, are, where are they? Can people come and see you? Because this is going to be at every um, podcast place. Well, um, again, uh, September 2nd with Mono Neon at Yoshi's in San Francisco. Okay. September 2nd, that's Labor Day weekend, so that should be nice. And then go the see Angie. Yes, go see Angie. And then uh, Who July, are you playing with then? Uh, 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 Mono Neon. 
Okay. Yeah, check him out. He's very eccentric, a, a ridiculous, um, a virtuoso bass player. He's, he's, he's just amazing. Very, very nice. You'll see if you check him out. And, and then July 31st, just like a music video shoot. That's great. Fantastic. Yeah. We'll have a great time. Thank you, Lauren. I appreciate it. Thank you so much, Angie. This was awesome. Likewise. Let's stay in touch, and I hope you have a wonderful day. You too. Take care. Bye. Bye-bye. Angie Swan. How cool is that? And what about that crazy guitar? <laughs> Thank you so much, Angie. It was so great to catch up with you. Good luck with everything. Have fun. So many ways to do this musician life. We're all finding our way, and our gifts make room for us. Keep visualizing. Keep imagining. Keep wanting. Keep letting yourself have these things that you desire. Keep creating. Keep playing. Keep studying. Keep being the best you. And go to your studio and make stuff. <laughs> 